Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 61 for the week ending July 14, 2017, the Summer in the City in edition. This week, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the HSBC Monitor Report is protected from release by the Second Circuit, we consider the Odebrecht scandal and how it continues to resonate across South America. We take a look at the first half of 2017, which brought two final resolutions of only two FCPA matters from the new administrations, both of which were declinations. Both declinations have significantly strengthened the FCPA pilot program as a clear path forward for every company that finds itself in FCPA hot water. We take a deep dive into Roy Snell's article about it's not who's who, but who gets it, which was published in the SCCE Compliance and Ethics blog. I talk about the rollout of the Compliance Podcast Network. I identify the uh, eight podcasts which are part of the Compliance Podcast Network, and we have a short discussion of that. Then we talk about the Everything Compliance recording that uh, I had this week in Houston where both Matt Kelly and Jonathan Armstrong were present, and we piped Jay Rosen in. We talk about some of the topics and preview the debate. This Week in FCPA is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA with my colleague, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. We are back for episode 61 for the week ending, July 14, 2017, the Summer in the City edition. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. How are you? I am good. Jay, I'm coming to you today from, indeed, the city of uh, Manhattan, New York City, where I'm here visiting my daughter, who is interning this summer. Uh, Are you staying at the Trump Tower? Uh, We are uh, not at the Trump Tower, no. We are not engaged in uh, any ethical violations along those lines. I will note it is 65 and raining, so it is very un-Houston-like weather. Um. But uh, that did not stop the week from having some very interesting ethics and compliance-related stories, Jay. So maybe we can just kind of hop right into it. Um, I'm not sure who broke it, but you, as in you, Jay Rosen, alerted me about a, a very significant appellate decision came that came out this week entitled or regarding the uh, HSBC Bank and It was not an FCPA case. Um, Nevertheless, it has significant implications in the FCPA realm. And basically, Jay, in this case, uh, HSBC, I think many people know, uh, entered into a deferred prosecution agreement for multiple violations of the Banking Secrecy Act, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, and the Trading with the Enemy Act, basically money laundering in 2012. As part of that agreement, they agreed to an external monitor who would file periodic reports on HSBC's ongoing compliance with anti-money laundering laws and with a deferred prosecution agreement itself. The um, deferred, uh, excuse me, the monitor would report annually. Certain news uh, organizations filed suit asking for the court to release the monitor's report as a public record. Um, the district court held uh, agreed with that somewhat and uh, allowed the uh, court, or excuse me, the um, um, 
parties, uh, the district court, to order uh, <coughs> certain release of the um, monitor's report, redacted release. And then uh, HSBC and the government jointly appealed this to the uh, Second District, uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The federal district judge was uh, Judge Gleason. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, um, the Second Circuit uh, overturned Judge Gleason and said no, that the federal district court could not uh, order release of this because it was not uh, as part of a court's exercise of jurisdiction. And uh, not to go too far into the weeds, Jay, but uh, on the legal side of things, uh, we had known from prior Second Circuit and other Court of Appeals opinions that uh, a the prosecutor here at the Department of Justice really has exclusive jurisdiction when uh, deciding on the terms of a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, district court judges have been slapped down and saying that they uh, did not approve of terms for uh, DPAs. But here we had a court saying that uh, in addition to or on other jurisdictional bases was um, when the monitor filed a report after the DPA had been uh, entered into and the court had jurisdiction over that DPA. And the district, uh, excuse me, the Court of Appeals said no, the district court does not have jurisdiction over a uh, monitor's report um, absent uh, extraordinary circumstances. So uh, for those who had hoped that monitor reports would be released, uh, this is certainly uh, goes in the opposite direction. Uh, most interestingly, there was a concurring opinion by one of the three sitting federal judges, and uh, that was Judge Pooler. And Judge Pooler um, really criticized the DPA process where uh, he didn't feel that the court had uh, any other way to rule um, other than the way it did. And uh, he criticized um, really the use of DPAs and encouraged, uh, explicitly encouraged the uh, Congress to take a look at this and have um, them opine or rather uh, pass legislation which would allow court um, overview of DPAs, uh, possibly including the release of monitor reports. Now we've had other judges criticize DPAs before. Uh, certainly Judge Rakoff has been one of those, but here we have uh, yet another um, court of appeals judge doing that. And whether this Congress, who can't seem to do anything, uh, I would say other than tie their shoe, but that may even be a stretch, um, whether they could uh, get together and address some of the concerns that have been raised by the judges around deferred prosecution agreements, uh, I don't know. But this really... Um, makes clear from the legal perspective that the DPA and negotiation and settlement process belongs to the prosecutors and the prosecutors only, and the courts have no role in that. So um, what does uh, kind of the monitor community think about this from your perspective, Jay? Um, you know, it's it's a pretty interesting ruling, um, not from the monitor perspective, but I just keep I, as you were reading the story and uh, recounting uh, the events I kept hearing a little British accent in my ear possibly it was our good friend uh, Jonathan Armstrong talking about how under the UK bribery act that the judiciary is actually part of the DPA process so um, 
I think uh, it's a legitimate uh, criticism from the government's perspective. I think from the monitor's perspective, we would want to uh, be doing our work with our client, uh, you know, to the government stipulations. And I think that work product uh, is something that should be kept closely held. And, um, you know, the only thing that could potentially be revealed is if, uh, you know, the company becomes a recidivist or they fall off the wagon. But besides that, um, I think it is uh, an accurate ruling right now to keep that under wraps. So we're going to have to uh, watch that one, Jay, because when you have a, a court of appeals judge really inviting congressional scrutiny, that tends to get things moving. Although um, uh, we've had other judges raise this before, so uh, you raise good points. Uh, I can see arguments on both sides, and uh, we'll just have to see how this one uh, will continue to evolve uh, going forward. So next up, um, Dick Casson wrote a really interesting piece, Jay, in the FCPA blog this week about the continued reach of the Odebrecht scandal. And I think you and I have talked about this before in terms of some of the countries that Odebrecht was in, some of the uh, governments that may have uh, taken Odebrecht money, uh, some of the political fallout in countries other than Brazil. But uh, Dick looked at it really from um, the angle of uh, fund managers uh, who uh, indicated that Odebrecht demonstrates a danger in what's called frontier markets and shortfalls of corporate governance. And so what we have really is fund managers uh, saying that uh, stock in foreign countries, excuse me, foreign companies in some of these countries may be negatively in, uh, impacted by Odebrecht. Now, part of it is the, obviously the fallout from Odebrecht, but it could include such things as putting other companies under scrutiny. It could be other foreign governments other than Brazil are cutting back uh, on foreign on public uh, infrastructure expenditures for fear of being entangled or allegations of bribery uh, around Odebrecht or other countries. It could be that individuals who actually uh, have been now named as receiving Odebrecht um, corrupt funds are in positions where they simply can't uh, move forward now. But when you have the investor community start saying, hey, people, this makes a difference and it's reducing the investment advice or the positive investment advice we can give, uh, I really think that Jay speaks to a level of um, how far down the, this type of scandal has impacted in in Latin America. Now, I know at, at one point in your varied and, and, and multifaceted career, you you work somewhat in that space. And so would um, from any of your corporate experiences, when you have these kinds of negative reports from fund managers, uh, how, how would that really be viewed? Um, I, I think you could view it as any type of public information that is um, – withheld that could affect stock prices. And, you know, when we see a lot of these follow-on um, lawsuits from, um, you know, corporate attorneys talking about that the company has missed their fiduciary responsibility by uh, not revealing an investigation in a timely manner, 
Um, a lot of times those get dismissed as nuisance suits, but uh, I still think that, you know, the way our market works, there's lots of assumptions that are priced into stocks and you need to uh, know whether or not revenue is clean. And if there are other issues, you know, there, that's the reason why that, you know, when we're always looking at quarterly reports and looking at companies that put aside reserves for investigations or potential payments to the uh, government. So I think, um, you know, th this is a very logical conclusion to our, <clears throat> towards where uh, a, a situation like Odebrecht might lead. Well, it's uh, certainly something that uh, I think U.S. investors, U.S. companies, and uh, others are really going to have to keep an eye on, Jay, because we're beginning to see this, really the effects of this um, multiply down through multiple levels of multiple countries' economies. And I think when you have that kind of effect, it's, uh, it's, it's something that at least needs to be monitored. Um, I have uh, my July article published this week in uh, Compliance Week, and Jay, in it, I took a look at the first two final resolutions on FCPA matters uh, this year under the Trump administration. Of course, they're the Lindy Gas case and the CDM Smith case. And uh, in my article, I take a look at, um, uh, they were both declinations. And I found that they had significantly strengthened the FCPA pilot program as a clear path forward for every company that finds itself in FCPA hot water. What uh, I saw in this, Jay, was really an effort by the uh, Justice Department to give substantive credit to companies who meet all four prongs of the FCPA pilot program. Now, uh, there has been some critique that um, I think Matt was a little frustrated with the lack of information that came out in uh, the uh, declinations, and he spoke to that in our uh, recording session for our next episode of Everything Compliance that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but I found that, uh, well, first, first of all, declinations typically don't have as much information. So uh, the, uh, I found that to be a structural issue. Nevertheless, I think it's important that the um, people think about the four prongs of the pilot program. And they think about each step that you have to take, and the requirements are really laid out in the pilot program. Now, we don't know kind of the specific levels of extraordinary coordination, uh, cooperation, rather, and the steps of remediation, because those were not revealed in the declination letters. Nevertheless, I think it really gives the compliance program and compliance professions some solid information to move forward on. And uh, when you only have two, of course, everything focuses on those two, and that's what I did in my article. But I found it to be a, a really important step forward for the compliance professional. And from the compliance program perspective, it's something that uh, you can take a look at. Uh, the Justice Department is clearly giving credit to those companies who meet the uh, parameters of the pilot program. And if you find yourself in this situation, it may well be worth your while to uh, self-disclose and uh, remediate and cooperate with the government and, of course, uh, disgorge uh, ill-gotten gain or, or profits based upon uh, bribery and corruption. So uh, I think it was a pl uh, certainly a net plus. Uh, whether it was a big plus or not, I'm not quite sure, but it was a net plus for the compliance profession. It's a net plus for compliance programs, and it demonstrates to me that this Department of Justice is going to continue to reward companies who meet the requirements, uh, the four prongs of the uh, pilot program. And uh, if you do find yourself uh, 
as a compliance professional or as a company in this situation, there is a path forward that you can successfully navigate out of. A quick question for you, Tom. Um, Two different industries that we're looking at, right? CDM Smith is the construction business. Lindy is gas and, uh, uh, I guess, medical supplies. Industrial gas. Um, Industrial gases. So I know that Matt took issue with the fact that there seemed to be a lot of repetition and the reasons why they received the declination. Um, Can you think of anything that could have been uh, or anything that was specific to either industry that stood out in your mind? Or, um, you know, again, to, to Matt's point, is it that they satisfied the four prongs and that's what we get back in the declination? Well, I guess, Jay, I might have to answer it in a little bit different manner because it was the things that were kind of specific to those industries were the bribery schemes. And that that may not even be correct. It may not have been specific to those industries, but they were certainly interesting bribery schemes. And whenever you can have the bribery scheme itself discussed, even in a couple of sentences, that gives people like you and I information to help communicate to our clients about, hey, have you looked for this? Uh, have you put internal controls in place to protect against this? Uh, certainly, Lindy Gas, what due diligence did you do in pre-acquisition? What due diligence did you do post-acquisition? Because that involved a case where the co- acquired company uh, engaged in bribery and corruption. They did not begin until after Lindy Gas had acquired them. So, you know, I can't even say that it was the acquired company because it was Lindy Gas that did the uh, bribery and corruption after they acquired the company. Uh, they are no longer them. They are now you. And so there are lots of there were uh, numerous lessons that could be drawn from the specifics of the bribery scheme. But uh, as to the, uh, the other point you raised, uh, I'm not sure that I saw anything industry specific with regard to the application of the pilot program or the companies following the prescripts of the four prongs of the pilot program. Thanks. Uh, You know, the other thing we can keep in mind is uh, I remember when I was a wee lad in the FCPA land and I was used to hear you talking about opinion release number something point something. And a long time ago, you really had to search through um, a DPA or an NPA and you really had to figure out what DOJ or what SEC was responding to. And in those intervening years, we've had the guidance, we've had uh, the new document that Way worked on. So it's possible maybe with even, you know, much to Matt's consternation, if we bring up this point about the declinations, who knows what will come and further decisions this year or in the future, but maybe DOJ might see the wisdom and, you know, being a bit more expansive in the reasons why the company achieved their declination. Uh, could could well do so, Jay. Um, we should also note, or I should also note, that uh, that uh, this is now the sixth declination. There were four in 2016 and two this year. So um, these are posted on the DOJ website. Uh, certainly, I blog about them and talk about them. And um, I think they're, uh, my, I'm link to my Compliance Week article where I wrap all this together for the compliance professional going forward. So, Jay, we had an uh, interesting article from Roy Snell. So why don't you, with that uh, 
with me giving that limited introduction, you had some really interesting comments on it. Why don't you set it up and uh, kind of lead us into this part of uh, the podcast? Thanks, Tom. So uh, I guess yesterday, Roy had an article that appeared on the uh, SCCE, uh, the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics website, and it was entitled, Who's Who Versus Who Gets It? And um, it seems that as of late, uh, with ethically what's happening in this company, rather in this country, there are a lot of uh, Johnny-come-latelys who are showing up with, um, you know, large public personas or having worked on a marquee case and uh, trumpeting that they are ethics and compliance professionals. And Roy, uh, as he is often does, uh, this got uh, a little bit under his skin and uh, raised his hackles, and he got out there and wanted to talk about the difference between uh, somebody who just flaunts their ethics and compliance uh, bona fides and somebody who lives it and does it each day. And he spoke uh, about a few of our colleagues uh, who we know very well from the conference circuit. He mentioned uh, Christy Grant Hart. He mentioned our colleague Jonathan Armstrong, Samantha Greaves, Al Gagney. And these are people who have all been through companies and they understand what we're up against. Uh, I decided to retweet uh, Roy's article and I said that uh, ENC uh, practitioners are ones who live and breathe ethics and compliance 24-7-365. And uh, Roy was uh, kind enough to pick up that idea and use that as a subtitle into his piece. And I think as of right now, um, I've had something like uh, 1,300 people who have looked at that article since uh, uh, actually it's now at Hang on one sec. It's now at 1,606. So it seems to have uh, struck a nerve with uh, other folks in the SCCE and the ethics and compliance community and uh, wondering what your thoughts are. So I uh, certainly uh, agree with uh, the sentiments. I guess um, really from my perspective, I think the, the quality of information that you put out is key. Uh, it's have you put out things that uh, specifically help the compliance practitioner, the compliance community, uh, the chief compliance officer moving forward? And it doesn't really matter to me if you started doing that yesterday uh, or you started doing that 10 years ago. If you don't put out any information that's helpful or useful and just want to engage in polemics around ethics and compliance, that's of no use to the compliance community. Uh, but it's putting out useful, helpful information uh, around this that uh, I really find that is the most important thing. And the, the people Roy named, I guess, other than perhaps Christy Grant Hart, who Roy notes does have one of the great names of all time when you can have the hyphenated name. That's uh, very cool. And, of course, she lives in England, so it's even more appropriate. Uh, she is um, uh, uh, communicates, writes, and certainly speaks a lot. But some of these other folks, uh, Greg um, Tribuga, uh, Samantha Greaves, Kim Lansford, Al Gagney, Dwight Kloster, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, Linda Hiller, uh, Kathleen Grilly, Erden Anderson, um, those people are, are not writing uh, as much. 
nevertheless, when they do put something out there, it's it's useful. It's substantive. It's communicated in a way that uh, is not an attack, but it's it's positive, useful information. And and really, that's kind of what I drew from from Roy's point. And the reason I name those people is those are people, not people who blog every day. Those are not people who podcast uh, every every day. Although I know Jonathan does some podcasts for his firm, and he's certainly a part of our Everything Compliance Group. But uh, we both know Samantha quite well, and she occasionally publishes an article. Um, and it's certainly a quality article and certainly very useful. Um, Erton, Erton Anderson, I've heard speak several times, and uh, very uh, insightful, very useful information for the compliance profession. So I guess the point that uh, I really drew from, from Roy, um, even if it wasn't uh, precisely what he intended, was that it's, it's not the... Uh, the length of time that you've been doing it, even if you're uh, Johnny come lately, if you've got a, some substantive information uh, that's quality information, that's useful information for the compliance professional, the compliance profession, uh, that's what uh, we need to have out there. Just political debate over what's ethical or what's not is is useless and not needed. Well said. So we're so, going um, to this uh, article. It's, um, you know, as you said, Roy really got uh, going on this one. We'll link to it in the show notes. So uh, we hope people will continue to check it out. So uh, how about Monday's um, blog of yours? Can you tell some of our listeners about that? Sure. So uh, on Monday, um, July 10th, uh, the day after my birthday, I rolled out the Compliance Podcast Network. And I'm really thrilled to, to roll this out. Uh, it is the first uh, podcast network uh, dedicated to compliance. It has, um, I think, eight different podcasts that uh, I produce. Uh, and some of them uh, I am a participant. and some of them I am a uh, moderator. In some of them I'm a host. So um, it puts, uh, and I have four platforms that I put these uh, podcasts out on. Uh, it includes certainly my site, uh, <clears throat> fcpacompliancereport.com, iTunes, Libsyn, and uh, JD Supra. Uh, the podcasts are, of course, this podcast, This Week in FCPA, where Jay Rhodes and I review the week's ethics and compliance and FCPA stories. The FCPA Compliance Report, where I interview uh, a person on a relevant topic around compliance. The Compliance Report International Edition. Um, where I interview someone from uh, outside the United States. Uh, 12 O'Clock High is a podcast on business leadership. On that podcast, I'm hosted by my colleague Richard Lummis, uh, and I comment on business leadership issues. Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with myself and Roy Snell. Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast with myself and Matt Kelly. Uh, Across the Board, it's a new podcast I'm uh, debuting next week, Jay, where I take on uh, take a look at compliance, corporate corporate governance and the role of a board of directors and generally in risk management. Uh, obviously, uh, everything compliance that we're going to talk in a little bit more in detail in a minute, which is a, po- a roundtable podcast of yourself, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Mike Volkoff. And then finally, I do a daily podcast on uh, one month to a more effective compliance program, where each month I take a different topic and take a deep dive into the uh, specific issue. This month, it's internal controls, but I've investigated investigations, uh, the role of HR, human resources and compliance, board of directors, and uh, really looking, uh, I've enjoyed that. 
uh, that podcast is uh, 10 to 15 minutes each day where the compliance professional can learn one thing on one topic and give them three key takeaways at the end that they can incorporate into their compliance program that day. So uh, that's the Compliance Podcast Network. It is on four different platforms. It's available for download if you want to timeshare and listen to it later. Of course, it's all free. And it's really my effort to bring the most widest, deepest, and best knowledge to the compliance professional on topics that are useful to them uh, moving forward in compliance. Well, I, I think it's an outstanding undertaking, and I uh, hope people avail themselves to it. And uh, it's nice to have all this information together in one place so it can be easily accessible. So, uh, Jay, I thought uh, maybe we would end this week with a little tasty preview of um, the Everything Compliance, next Everything, uh, next couple of Everything Compliance podcasts. Uh, we had the opportunity this week, Jonathan Armstrong and Matt Kelly were both in Houston. So I got us some uh, studio time and we were able to pipe you in uh, to have a uh, three-way. Uh, it was not the four amigos this time, it was the Trace Amigos. Nevertheless, we had a really interesting and I thought very uh, fun uh, podcast where we took a look at, at a wide variety of issues. Some of these included uh, the Trump administration and FCPA enforcement, uh, the uh, EU's GDPR, Wei Chen's departure from the Department of Justice, um, the uh, Walter Schaub's departure from the uh, Office of Government and Ethics, uh, the enforcement reports uh, in FCPA that we touched a little earlier, but highlighted in the Gibson Dunn FCPA mid-year report. Took a look at uh, briefly campaign finance laws, the right to be forgotten uh, in Europe, big data and compliance, what it might mean for antitrust in Europe. Um, Jonathan took us through six years of the uh, UK Bribery Act and talked about uh, the Rolls-Royce prosecution and why it was so significant. So it really, um, I thought was, uh, and then I, of course, talked about my current most favorite subject, the Chicken Shit book, the Chicken <laughs> Shit Club book. Um, sorry, once again, we will, have, of course, announce uh, in the uh, introduction of adult language in this. Um, so um, it was a really uh, a wide-ranging, uh, uh, long podcast, and uh, we're going to, everybody got to do a good rant at the end. So uh, I think uh, people are going to enjoy it, and it was a, a really a ton of fun, Jack. Yeah, it certainly was. Are you going to release both halves next week or one half next week and one half the week after? It'll probably be, uh, we, were, we went uh, pretty close to two hours, so I'll do wow. two one-hour podcasts. Um, probably the first half will be uh, yourself and Matt and then uh, Jonathan and, and myself, but uh, we'll get the rants in on the first, uh, the first podcast because they were a lot of fun. So a uh, question about uh, your reading habits. Are you a Kindle guy or are you still reading on real paper that you can put between your fingers? No, I'm a book, book, book and paper guy. So uh, did you get to jump into any of your new favorite book on the flight to New York? I jumped into uh, the Chicken Shit Club. And uh, any... any uh, any little teasers you can give us right now, or do you need to read more before you can uh, give well, us another? Well, um, the, the, really the thesis of the book is why the DOJ has dropped off its number of uh, prosecutions of individuals 
around corporate white-collar crime. Uh, the last significant prosecutions were uh, the Enron, WorldCom, and from that era of uh, financial fraud. And after that, it's dropped off pretty considerably. And so I, I read up through the Enron trials, and I just got through the Arthur Anderson case. And it really turns out that Arthur Anderson was the seminal event which crystallized the change in DOJ policy. Um, if, for the listeners who might not remember, Arthur Anderson was uh, Enron's auditors. Uh, they were caught destroying documents, and um, they went to trial, uh, took, uh, refused to take a guilty plea in settlement, went to trial, and lost at trial, and uh, <coughs> lost um, uh, the company uh, ended up disintegrating and going away. Um, Arthur Anderson had that case reversed at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so at the end of the day, they won. The problem was there was nothing left. But what Arthur Anderson did win was the battle of public opinion. And they hired a PR firm that put on a, a very interesting and for that time new and aggressive PR program that it really wasn't fair to put a company out of business for the action of a few bad apples. And um, that uh, by aggressively enforcing uh, U.S. laws, the Department of Justice literally put a multi-thousand uh, employee company out of business. And that storyline um, is something that, that really I believe was true. Uh, it turns out that Arthur Anderson was really on its last legs anyway. They made a series of major, um, had a series of major problems, series of major malpractice cases. And so um, whether or not they would have uh, gone under absent Enron is, is unknown, of course, at this point. But the story became that was what took them down. And that story resonated with people like me. It resonated in the business community. The business community lobbied Congress. They lobbied um, the Department of Justice, not to let this happen again. I think if you talk to DOJ prosecutors after that time, they were certainly cognizant of that. And, and they I don't think they would say they were in the business of putting out companies out of business uh, that were not, you know, complete evil empires. Uh, there are some companies that are like that, uh, that are evil empires. I don't think Arthur Anderson was an evil empire. Nevertheless, uh, they did go out of business. So um, the the fallout from Arthur Anderson and most specifically the PR campaign they put on after they lost a trial but were still around on appeal. Uh, they won that battle and that's where I am in the book. So it's going to be interesting to see going forward. It's uh, very well written. Uh, the Chicken Shit Club by Jesse Isaacer. Um, so pick it up and at some point I'm going to do a very lengthy podcast on it with uh, someone. So uh, we'll have to see how that goes. Great. Well, thanks for sharing where you are in the book and uh, hope you have fun with your daughter this weekend. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending some time with us and looking at this week in FCPA for the week ending July 14th, 2007, Bastille Day. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Also, if you listen to this podcast on iTunes, it would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly summary of the FCPA and compliance-related events. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.